Well, good morning. We are so glad you're here. We're glad Jared's part of our team. We're super grateful for Pastor Andy and his leadership. Where's Miss Ruth Gillis? Where are you sitting at in here, Miss Ruth? Right in front of me, all the way from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Isn't that amazing? We're so grateful you're part of the family, even if you're a Yankee. We're so grateful you're here. Uh, today's been a great day, and we love getting to worship together. We love getting to celebrate together. And we know we've got many other people watching online and people that are, uh, for various reasons, not in the room, but still part of the family. And so we're super, super grateful. Well, if you don't mind, today we're going to dive into the teaching that Pastor Andy mentioned called Life on Mission. And it's really designed to be a short sort of compact teaching because there's a lot of people that know that Sugar Hill Church does mission, that we're a church that lives on mission. Just yesterday, just seeing the wonderful ministry taking place in our parking lot with One Sweet Day that, that focused on uh, inter, not just intergenerational, but inter, uh, ethnicity, and to see what God's doing as our prayer is to reflect our community and serve and bring together and have conversations. It's so powerful. And then last night, I got to go with some friends to hear about a wonderful ministry down the street that helps young moms and those little ones just uh, have, uh, have the best start to their life. And so there's a lot of things that Sugar Hill gets to be part of, but sometimes people don't know what's the why behind that. I mean, why is Sugar Hill so big about being on mission? So what I want to do today is sort of take a step back. Next week, Pastor Chuck has a great word about here's some of the things we're doing, and many of them you know about, but there's been some new partnerships over the last year or two that we can't wait to bring you up to speed on. So he's going to talk about the how and what we're doing. But what I want to do today is I want to take a step back and sort of give you a big picture of the why. And so today, instead of teaching just from one passage and drilling in, I want to sort of zoom out a little bit and give you a big picture of the story that God is writing. And so to start us off, I want to look at Romans chapter 1. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, please feel free to do that. If you have the, the Sugar Hill Church app, there's a, a button that says message slides. You can follow along there. Um, but if you don't mind, if you're able to, I'd love for us to stand together as we read Scripture as we dive into this idea of the story that God is writing. Here's what it says in Romans 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called it to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Then skip down to verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for a wonderful church that we can live on mission. God, would you help us to see your mission 
from the big picture. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. You can be seated. One of the things I am fascinated by is the idea of story. I love good stories. And I think our lives, honestly, every single day are stories that we're writing out. That there are things that we believe. And as a result, there are things that we live out. The stories that we believe shape decisions that we make. And so in the fall, we're going to kick off a class, a course that's about 12 weeks or so called the Missional Life Course. And as I was reviewing this course before we get ready to offer it, it has within it three stories that I thought illustrate this idea that the stories we believe shape the decisions we make. Story number one is a young man that grew up in middle America. And in his early years, he finds himself with this desire to be the center of attention so in his teenage years, he takes acting classes, and in his young adult life, he has the desire to be on stage. During the time, he finds himself getting more and more disenfranchised with the state of the nation, and he gets drawn into politics. Slowly but surely, he becomes a convert of the QAnon conspiracy. As a result, he finds himself dressing in leather skins, putting on a Viking helmet, along with a group of other people storming the Capitol under the story of conspiracy. Jake Angeli is known as the Kunman Shaman, and he was formed, and his life was defined by the story he believed. Story number two, as a young man that grew up in Egypt, he studied architecture at Cairo University. He does well, and then he transfers to Hamburg, Germany, where he continues his studies. A faithful Muslim, he attends a local mosque where over the course of time, he's radicalized. He begins to believe that America is not the salvation of the world, but instead America is the great Satan of the world and that it should be destroyed. And so with a group of other bombers on 9-11, he hijacks a plane and he flies it into a building. Muhammad Atta was shaped and he was defined by the story he believed. Example number three is a young woman that grows up and she's haunted with this sense that she wants to give her life for the things of God and the purposes of God. She doesn't speak English, but she has a sense that she's called for the larger world. And so she goes to Northern Ireland. She learns English to be more effective in her studies. And while on retreat in the middle of the slums, she is overwhelmed by the need around her. And she births a new missionary moment. The woman, Mother Teresa, goes on to be a saint in many people's minds in our modern world and the story that she believes has massive consequences. The stories we believe, the narrative that we find ourselves in, the way that we see the world, the picture, the story that we believe shapes the lives that we live. And here's the danger is that if we don't live for the right story, we might end up living the wrong life. One quote that I read from uh, just a psychologist and sociologist said this. He said, there's a danger that you will, you will actually mislive that despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while you're alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you're on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your own chance at living. And instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you, you squandered it 
because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various things that life has to offer. We have to get the story right. We have to get the story right. That when we don't understand the big story, when we don't understand the story of what God's been doing, we'll be sucked into a smaller story. We'll get sucked into a smaller narrative. We'll be sucked into a smaller way of living. And so today, what we want to do is step back and ask the question, what is the story of God? What is it that God's been doing since the beginning of time? And there's a lot of ways to describe it. But one of the ways that pastors throughout the last 2,000 years has described the story of God is essentially four parts of that story. It's a story that starts with creation, then it leads to the fall, then it leads to redemption, and then one day it leads to this idea of restoration. And so what I want to do is I want to take those four parts of the story and ask the question, how do we make sure we don't mislive? How do we make sure we don't live in a smaller story? How do we live into the story of God? So if you're a note taker, if you've got something to write on, something to write with, or if you want to follow along in the, in the app, the first part of the story, part one of the story is the creation. This story starts with creation. In Genesis 1, here's what it says in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So this is where it all starts. The writer says this, that he created the heavens and the earth. That's the Hebrew way of saying that from top to bottom, from head to toe, everything that you see has its origin in God, that God himself created it. And then when you fast forward down to verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that he may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along. Verse 27, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is where the story starts. In fact, if you read Genesis 1 and 2 carefully, what you see over and over again is every time God speaks something and every time God creates something, he says it is good. That there's a sense of wholeness. There's a sense of peace. There's a sense of this is the way it was meant to be. There's the sense of this is wholesome and amazing. I mean, it starts with God creating and it goes through God saying it's good, it's good, and he blessed it and he blessed it and he blessed it. This is how the story begins. I think it's important to start there because a lot of times, if we're not careful, we'll start with sin and we'll start with fall and we'll talk about all the things that are wrong and we'll talk about uh, just all the craziness around us and we'll forget that this is not the way it's always been. That when God created it, he created it and it was good. There's a lot of ways to understand Genesis 1 and 2, but one of the ways that I found super helpful is to think about it through the lens of relationship. That God's a relational God. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, essentially we see four relationships that God creates. The first one is our relationship with God himself. I mean, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, there's the sense of we're made to actually walk with God. That we're made to actually know God that we can be with them. I mean, the picture in the garden is that they would spend time with God. They would walk with God, that there was no shame, there was no sin, there was no, no mess ups. There's this beautiful picture. And so the fact that God creates us for a relationship means that we have a spiritual life. This is where we get our sense of spirituality, that we can know him, we can walk with him, we can have a relationship with him. 
The second relationship that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is our relationship with ourselves. This is where we get our identity. And so God says, let us make man in our image, in our image. And so we're made in the image of God. There's something in our DNA. There's the fingerprints of God on our life. That's where we find true identity. That's where we find our true worth. That's where we find uh, uh, what, what we're made for. And then the third relationship is our relationship with other people, with community. And so with our relationship with God, we, we, we have spirituality. With our relationship with ourselves, we find identity. With our relationship with other people, we're made for community. When he says, let us make man in our image, what we learn later in Scripture is that what he's referring to is that it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God himself lives in relationship, and so he creates us to live in relationship with other people, to connect with other people, to have relationship with other people. And then the fourth relationship is our relationship with the created order, with the world around us. And so even before sin, he gives them a job. He says, look, this is amazing. The garden is unbelievable. It's flourishing. It's teeming with, with beauty and, and wonder. But he gives them a job to cultivate it and to fill the earth and to, to build culture and to shape the world around them. This is a beautiful picture. Creation's amazing. I mean, the sense that you can know God, that you can walk with God, that you can have relationships with other people that, that aren't based on false pretense, that you can know where your identity comes from. You can be secure. You can go to bed at night knowing that you're enough, that you can relate to other people and the world around you. This is amazing. And I think inside of us, there's a longing to get back there. Inside of us, there's a sense that, man, I want that. Man, I want that picture of relating to God and myself and to other people and, and to the world around me. There's a sense. I mean, I think hardwired in us, if we're to turn off the noise, for would you agree with me? If you turn off the noise enough, there's something in us that wants to get back there. One of the silly ways that I know that we want to get back to this kind of connection. I mean, how else can you explain the popularity of the one billion Hallmark movies that are out there? Are you with me? I mean, every Hallmark movie has a similar plot. I found this on Twitter and I thought it was so true. Here, here's what one person described the plot of every Hallmark movie. It's about a career woman who is too busy for love but she has to move to a small town where a handsome local bachelor teaches her about the true spirit of the holidays. <laughs> they fall in love, but then they break up. They fight. They get back together. It starts snowing. And they kiss. And there's a dog in the story. Not cats, dogs. Let me just point that out. There's a sense inside of us that we want something beautiful. We want that, don't we? And so the story starts with creation. It was good. Creation's amazing. Creation in and of itself is God's design. And God's, God says, man, I want you to know me. I want you to know yourself. I want you to be able to relate in a healthy way with other people. I want you to live in community. I want you to, I want you to join me in the work of shaping this earth. It is great. Your life matters. God has you on earth for a purpose, but something's broken. So part one of the story is creation, but part two of the story is the fall. 
And a lot of times when we talk about the fall, the place that we focus, rightly so, is in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve are tempted by the enemy. In the writing, he shows up as a serpent, and the serpent uh, asks a question and says, uh, did God really say that you can't eat from that tree? Did God really say that you'll, you will not really die? And the enemy uses those question marks like, like landmines in their brains. He plants seeds of doubt inside of them. Did God really say, oh, you will not surely die? And so, the, so Adam and Eve are tempted and they believe the lies of the enemy. But here's what's so interesting is when they're placed in the garden, the serpent is already there. I know it's 11 o'clock on Sunday morning and it's beautiful outside and we need more caffeine in our systems. But uh, if you just want to write down Ezekiel in the Old Testament, Ezekiel in the Old Testament, it gives us a picture that even before the fall in Genesis 3, there was a rebellion in heaven where Satan and a third of the angels revolted against God. And so sin didn't start in the garden itself. It already started somewhere before Adam and Eve are placed in the garden where Satan and a third of the angels revolted and Satan wanted to get the, 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 the glory that God was getting. And, and so Satan rose up trying to overthrow God. And of course he was unsuccessful. And so God casts him down, down out of heaven onto this earth. And so the enemy's on this earth. The enemy's already there in the garden. And the enemy knows, I can't beat God. I can't overthrow God. So what am I going to do instead? Well, what he does instead is he attacks the thing that God loves, his people. And so the reason why I think this is so important is because everything in our world that is broken, everything has been distorted. Everything has been twisted by sin, and the root of sin is there's an enemy. Now, again, I know that that's kind of heavy, but it's so important because here's the deal. We're living, we're literally, and I don't mean to discount what's going on around the globe today and be insensitive in any way at all, but literally we are on a spiritual battleground today. There's a spiritual war going on around us. Whether we realize it or not, whether we see it with our physical eyes or not, there is an enemy, and the enemy would love to undo whatever God is up to. The enemy would love to, to bring sin and distortion, and, and he would love to attack anything that God is up to. The, there is a battle going on, but the problem is most of us don't believe that battle is there, and we don't believe there's an enemy. But just because we don't believe the battle is going on, and just because we don't believe in an enemy, we still feel the effects of the war. I mean, we still feel the effects of sin. We still feel the effects of broken relationships and isolation from God and, and, and disconnection from other people and an, an earth that, that is hurting right now. We feel those effects. And if we're not careful, we'll see the effects of sin, but not the root of sin, and we'll end up blaming the wrong people. Does that make sense? If you don't believe there's an enemy, but you're still being attacked and you begin to look for where's the attack coming from, you might be tempted to blame someone instead of the enemy. Does that make sense? And so sin's a big deal. Sin's a big deal. Everything, all those relationships, our relationship with God, broken because of sin. Our relationship with ourselves, our sense of our true identity, distorted because of sin. 
Our relationship with other people, broken because of sin. Our relationship with the world around us, marred because of sin. And I'll be honest, uh, we don't like talking about sin in our culture. We don't like talking about it. I mean, it feels uncomfortable. Even in church, it, it's almost like uncomfortable. Oh, you're talk, talking about sin. But we've got to realize how damaging sin is. Sin isn't just, oh, I had a little, you know, I'm on keto and I decided to have a, have a little red velvet cake today. That's not, oh, look how naughty I am, right? Sin isn't, well, I just told a little fib. It's not that big of a deal. Danny, thanks for contributing to my temptation today to have red velvet cake. Sin is dangerous. In fact, let me just, let, let me just rattle off just the power of sin and why, why, why sin is such a big deal. Here's how the Bible describes sin. If you want this list, just drop me an email, bobby at sugarhillchurch.com. But sin in Isaiah 40 is described as a debt that needs to be paid. Sin in Isaiah 1 talks about having physical burden that's a consequence of it. Hosea describes sin as spiritual adultery. Joshua describes sin as rebellion. Romans describes it as transgression. First John calls it lawlessness. Uh, Romans goes on to talk about disobedience. Philippians calls it a type of false worship. Sin is dangerous. And the reason why it's so important for us to talk about it is because it's at the root of everything that's broken. I mean, if I were to go to the doctor and I'm not feeling well and something's not going right for me, I want the kindest thing a doctor could do was actually tell me what's going on with me. Are you, are you tracking with me? You don't want, the, you know, sometimes when you go to the doctor, you got like a little fever and they're like, hey, take some Tylenol, you'll be okay. And you're like, I, I still don't know what's going on, but all right, I'll, 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 I'll do that. But just imagine if I showed up at Tri-County Medical tomorrow and my left arm was missing. There's probably a better illustration of this, but you know what I'm saying. If I showed up, you know, and I'm left-handed, and they say, here, fill out the clipboard. I'm like, hello. <laughs> what if I got back to the little, you know, waiting room where they put you on the deli paper and uh, tell you to wait a minute? And then the doctor finally comes in and says, well, what seems to be the problem? Well, what seems to be the problem is my left arm is missing. I've got a nurse on the front row here. She can, you know, this is, right? So uh, my left arm's missing. Well, well, you, you look like you still feel pretty good. Yeah, but I'm left-handed and my arm's missing. Well, if my doctor just said, well, you still, you know, your, your blood pressure's fine and your heart is still beating and, you know, maybe just take a couple more probiotics each day. Just take some more fish oil. Is that a very kind doctor? Now I want somebody that's going to tell me what's at the root of that. And what's at the root of the brokenness in our world? And what's at the root of the brokenness in me and the brokenness in us is that there's a sin problem. So part one of the story is creation. You matter, man. Your life is important. You, you are made for relationship. You, you are made to identify the way that God's identified you. You're made to live in community. You're made to, to join him in the work of this world. But something's broken, and all those relationships are broken because of sin. But it sets up the best part of the story, the story of redemption. 
Part three of the story is redemption. Why in the world would Paul talk about the good news of the gospel in Romans 1? Why would Paul say it's the power of God for those that believe? Why is the gospel such a big deal? Because it literally is the best news on the planet. What's interesting is we get used to the word gospel and we don't think about the, the word gospel. It's a Greek word, euangelion, and it literally means good news. To evangelize means to proclaim the good news. What's interesting is the early church borrowed that word from their culture. In Roman culture, when Rome would go into some battle and they would come back from battle and if they won that battle, they would send somebody ahead of the army to go back home and to proclaim, we won, we won, Roma victor, Roma victor, we won, good news, we won the battle. And so when the early church and when the gospel writers were trying to describe, how do we describe the fact that God created everything and it was good? And how do we describe the fact that everything has been affected by sin? How do we describe the fact that God stepped out of heaven and stepped onto this earth and that God lived a perfect, sinless life? How do we describe the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he took my sin, your sin, the sin of the world? How do we describe the fact that Jesus makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God again? How do we describe the fact that Jesus makes it possible for us to have our identity back in wholeness again? How do we describe that Jesus makes it possible for us to relate with other people and to join him in the work in the world? And the way that they chose to describe it is, it is good news. It's the gospel. It's redemption. It's something that we couldn't do ourselves. We couldn't fix it. We couldn't program it. We couldn't take another class about it. God did what we could never do. And he starts the story of redemption. That's why Paul in Romans 1, when we read it, he said he's declared to be the son of God by power, by the resurrection of the dead, that Jesus and Jesus alone beat death, making it possible for our relationship with God to be back possible, a relationship with ourselves to be fulfilled and whole, for a relationship with other people to, to be able to, to, to serve and love people uh, uh, and to, to model what the church is supposed to be. And then he puts us in community and puts us in this world and says, I want you to join me in this work. But there's a fourth part of the story, and it's called restoration. See, the tension we live in is something that, that many people call the now but not yet. The now is, man, Jesus died on the cross and Jesus rose again and Jesus beat death. The now is he makes it possible for anybody to ask him and he would step out of heaven and step into the heart. There's a now part of this, but there's a not yet that it hasn't been fully realized. There's a not yet that, that Jesus taught us to pray, pray thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a mission that Jesus inaugurated on this earth that is gonna come to completion one day. And my prayer is that it'll come one day very, very soon. Are you with me? There's, there's this now of, hey, I've been forgiven. And there's this now of, hey, he makes it possible for me to know him. But there's a future picture of total restoration. There's a now of, I can take steps and grow in my relationship. There's a now of, I can join him in the work that he's doing. But there's a not yet that the story isn't over yet. 
So when people ask the question, well, why do you do what you do? Why is Sugar Hill Church so much about, hey, we're never going to be the biggest church, but we want to have the biggest heart? Why is Sugar Hill Church committed to saying, hey, we want to host things like one sweet day, and we want to intentionally try to reflect our community and build relationships, conversations? Why does Sugar Hill Church say we want to be involved in our, in our, our community two miles from us to help uh, first-generation English speakers not drop out of high school? Why in the world do we care so much about teenage moms that are trying to figure out what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Why do we want to make sure that our kids at our local school don't go uh, home on the weekends without bags full of food so that they don't go hungry? Why is it that we want to prioritize investing in marriages and helping couples thrive, not just survive their marriages? Why is it that we want to help people get out of debt so that they can live the life that God's called them to? Why is it that we would help support a church in, in Nairobi, Kenya, and Kasumu, Kenya, so that thousands of Kenyans could live beyond their diagnosis of HIV or AIDS so that their kids don't become orphans. Why would we do any of that and so much more? Because Jesus invites us to join him in the work of restoration. We are called to live a life on mission. When Jesus was on this earth, right before he left this earth, he said to his disciples, he said, I am the light of the world, but I'm only gonna be with you a little while longer. And it's as if he said, now tag, you're it. Now you're the light of the world. Go and make disciples. And so while we live in the now, waiting for the not yet, Jesus invites us to join him in the work of renewing all things. Does that make sense? You and I have a purpose. I don't know what your job is. I don't know what your vacation is. I don't know what your age is, but Jesus invites every single one of us in whatever part of the world we live in, whatever sphere of influence we have, whatever it is God puts in front of us, Jesus invites us to live our life on mission, taking what he accomplished on the cross and help him bring it into the world of the lives around us. This is a better story. Our story is bigger than, well, I just wanna get by. Our story is bigger than, man, I just wanna just try to, try to make it. Our, the, our story that we're part of is bigger than, hey, I just wanna make it to a certain age and retire and move to Florida and watch Hallmark movies all day long. There's a story that God's been writing and he invites us into it. I heard somebody say one time, he who tells the best story wins. We have the best story. Let's live it out. Are you with me? Are you with me? I'd love for us just to, to stand very quietly and reverently for a time of prayer. If you're watching online, as long as you're not driving, I'd love for you to bow your heads and close your eyes as well. But I just sense so strongly that God is inviting so many people I mean, I think even about the work with foster kids and adoption. I think about um, uh, single moms. I think about, th there's so many things that God has put in front of us and he's inviting us to be part of. And so as I told you, man, next week, Pastor Chuck's gonna get into more details of the practical how part. But I think it's so important for us to know why. Because Jesus invites us to be part of his story. As we pray together this morning, I wonder 
Um, maybe in your head and your heart, you just want to pray and say, Jesus, would you help me to see the story you're inviting me to be part of? Jesus, would you help me to see a bigger story that's bigger than, than what the world's trying to tell me? Jesus, would you help me to adjust to your story? And maybe this morning you find yourself separated from him. Maybe even now in your head and your heart, you just want to say, dear Jesus, would you help me to turn from my sin? Help me to put my full trust in you, accepting that gift that you offer. Or maybe you've been in a place like some friends I got to chat with yesterday morning that were, you know, it's just been tough. No matter what industry you're in, no matter what you've been doing, man, it's been tough. And maybe somewhere along the way, you've been tempted to lose heart and lose hope. Maybe in your head and your heart, you just want to say, Jesus, would you remind me that you're still at work? That you're in charge now, but there's a not yet part of restoration that we look forward to. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these amazing men and women, these young men, young ladies. Thank you for those that are watching with us online. Thank you for the invitation you give us to join you in the work of restoration. And I pray for all of us, myself included, would you give us a sense of mission this week? That we'd wake up with the sense that there's something we're meant to do and there's some way that we can help bring the gospel and touch it into the lives of the world around us. And God, I pray for those that may not know you yet, that God, if it would please you, that you draw them to yourself, that today they'd put their trust in you, that they'd lean on you, that they'd find their strength and their hope in you. Father, for those that are weary, would you give them a sense of strength today? To every parent, to every educator, to um, every retiree, for all the spectrums in between, Father, would you give us your strength? In just a moment when I finish praying, the team's gonna lead us. And in some ways, this song is a declaration, but in many ways, it's an invitation, a prayer. And as we're just a few weeks away from Easter, one of my prayers has been that I believe God has on his heart the spiritual renewal of our city. And so as we lead up to Easter, I wanna just invite you to to join Pastor Chuck and I and our team in praying for that. And as we sing the song in a moment, to lift that up and to ask God to do what only he can do, that he is still in the business, as Zach referenced earlier, of making dead things be able to come back to life. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the work you're doing in us and in this place. God, would you revive us? God, would you wake us up? Would you bring spiritual renewal in our city and would you start with each one of us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.